Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, my guest on the show today is Dr. Stacy Klutz. Stacy obtained his Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from Missouri State University and went on to receive an MD and a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Arkansas. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship at Washington University School of Medicine in the Department of Molecular Biology and his residency training in the Department of Pathology. Stacy's clinical foci include many areas of clinical pathology, including clinical microbiology and clinical chemistry. He is a member of the American Society of Microbiology and the American Society of Clinical Pathology, among other groups. Now, more recently, Stacy has served as the special assistant to the National Director of Pathology and Lab Medicine for the entire Veterans Affairs System, with a specific role in advising on elements of COVID testing for the system. Stacy is widely published in medical journals and has written extensively about COVID and vaccine safety and effectiveness. Now, given that he has dedicated his entire life to medical science, Stacy is obviously passionate about his work, but he also manages to convey information in a calm, dispassionate, and clear manner. And that really speaks to my goal here with this episode. Now, there is so much confusion and shaming and social media vitriol exchanged around the topic of vaccines. And we just can't seem to have a rational, nuanced, respectful, factual conversation. So that's what I am attempting to do here with Dr. Klutz. So in this episode, Stacy and I address the Delta variant in some great detail, how it differs from the ancestral strain, why mutations occur, and how people are infected. We discuss the development of the vaccines, the nature of messenger RNA, the clinical trial process, and the initial efficacy and safety data. We talk about breakthrough cases, why they occur, the difference in transmission, hospitalization, and death rates between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. We discuss the VAERS database and data relating to side effects, including myocarditis. And we prognosticate on the future of COVID and how we are going to get there. Now, there are places where this interview gets technical, 
but given that almost everyone is moonlighting as a virologist right now, hopefully you will find it useful. And while it's impossible to completely escape opinion and bias, more than anything, I hope you walk away with factual information that you can apply to your life and your decisions. There is really nothing that underscores the idea of our mutual interdependence more than a viral epidemic. And COVID is really something that should unite us given that our individual health is completely tethered to our collective health here. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Stacy Klutz. Okay, Dr. Stacy Klotz, good to be with you. Great, good to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you you taking the time at a at a very busy inflection point in uh, in what's going on. So, um, but before you take us to school this afternoon, um, I want to just preamble our conversation with a timestamp. Um, and uh, uh, so we're speaking on August twenty fifth. 2021. And my reasoning here is related to how quickly the ground is shifting beneath our fit, our feet. Um, if we just take a moment to reflect on what a difference a month makes, right? Um, in July, uh, we were essentially poised for uh, almost a COVID victory lap. Um, and here we are in August battling uh, a variant that is once again taking a thousand lives per day in the United States and, and producing consistently over a hundred thousand positive cases or positive tests. So any analysis we make here is based around the data that we have <laughs> and, and new data seems to be emerging every day. And, and I, I really stress this because there's been a lot of, I suppose, justifiable frustration with self-contradicting messaging coming from public health agencies. But we really need to understand that science in its best form is versatile and flexible and leverages a method that reflects the reality of these shifting conditions. And so, um, you know, these, you know, Delta has really shifted the condition in myriad ways. And I hope to be able to spend considerable time with you unpacking uh, the nature of the variant and its relationship to the current vaccines. Um, but before diving in there, perhaps you can scaffold our conversation uh, just with some background regarding how you come to, to know about this topic and how you seem to be able to access uh, so much current data. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, I wear a number of different hats uh, professionally and, and have for, for quite some time. Um, so I, I just at the baseline, I am a clinical pathologist or a laboratory medicine specialist. Um, but with within that field, I'm a subspecialist in clinical microbiology. Um, so I have a keen interest in not only in the diagnosis of infectious disease, but but also in the pathogens that actually cause all of these infectious diseases. I mean, we're, we're the experts in the bugs, if you will. And, uh, and we have to understand them at a, at a really detailed level in order to be able to develop all of the diagnostics uh, that are necessary for, uh, for infectious disease, uh, various management of infectious diseases and the diagnosis of infectious diseases. Uh, you know, I've also, uh, I have a PhD in biochemistry in addition to my MD. 
And um, all of my basic research work has been from grad school through postdoc through uh, through my my faculty career has all been on really the biochemistry of microbes. Um, so so again, I, I've I've always had a a keen interest in, in understanding how these organisms work, especially how they work in relationship to human disease. Um, but you know, you you can't be too focused there. You, you have to make sure that you are just understanding them in general so that uh, you can really fully uh, appreciate how they behave um, whenever, you know, they do interact with humans. Um, and, and then, you know, over time, I've actually developed a number of administrative roles. Um, I was the medical director of clinical microbiology at the University of Iowa for a number of years, and then moved over to uh, the VA system uh, where I've actually been for 14 years, but but I've actually gained a lot of administrative uh, uh, administrative experience as the chief of pathology at the VA in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I'm a staff pathologist and, and do a lot of administrative work here at the Iowa City VA. Um, and then uh, I've been the chair of the National Clinical Microbiology Council for VA for a number of years. And then as of this past spring. I was asked to be the special assistant to the national director of pathology for the VA system, where myself and a group of, of very talented subject matter experts are daily and routinely looking at all of the data. That, and there's a lot of it. <laughs> Lots mm -hmm. of data are coming across now with regards to SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. And 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 trying to understand exactly how um, you know how we need to be uh, you know affecting policy based on, on on our current understanding of of how the virus is behaving. Um, so that's in a nutshell. Nice, nice. Thanks. Um, thanks for that background info. So I'd love to just get into some basic virology before we uh, attack the the nature of the Delta variant. Um, so if you don't mind, just starting with the ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2, so the original um, virus that, that um, seemed to emerge in China sometime in the fall of 2019. Um, and, and really just explain to us how the SARS-CoV-2 virus infects a healthy cell and, and maybe kind of in that, def in that um, explanation, you can address a little bit of the, of the much mythologized uh, spike protein um, sure. that has taken on uh, <laughs> a life of its own. Sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 first of all, the, the virus itself is a coronavirus, as, as most people under, uh, understand at this point. And, you know, coronaviruses have been around forever. Um, this is nothing new uh, as far as our interaction with, with viruses as, as a whole. Um, but this one is particularly novel. It has, you know, various uh, antigens and proteins on the surface that we haven't seen before, and therefore the the you know humans have have no baseline immunity to this particular virus, and and that is what's incredibly important here, um, because you know viruses do what viruses do, uh, but it's it's our lack of immunity that that really creates a lot of the problem. 
And so, um, so what this particular virus does is, you know, pretty simply, it has proteins, uh, a specific protein on the surface, and we can talk more about the spike protein in a little bit and some of the, the mutations, but that spike protein specifically binds to a, a, a couple of different receptors on the surface of human cells. Uh, one of those receptors that a lot of people have heard about is the ACE2 receptor. Um, and so once that binds, a series of, of biological steps happen that allow the, the outside of the viral membrane to then fuse to the, uh, the cellular membrane. And then it inserts the contents, those two, once those two membranes fused, basically the guts of the virus then sort of get pushed into the human cells. Viruses are really, um, I, I like to call them beautifully stupid um and and they 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 are brilliantly stupid however you want to say but but they actually have a simplicity that is is quite elegant but but at the same time you know these aren't organisms that think um even though you know you hear people almost giving them that that's that ability so all they do is they 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 put their their material into the cell and their one job is to replicate that's it. That's all they want to do. And they somewhat hijack our cellular machinery to be able to do this. So some of our machinery starts making new pieces of, of more virus, um, and then it brings along some of its own um, machinery as well, which allows it to then replicate its, in this specific case, an R, its RNA. So all of that to say that really all it's doing is just trying to replicate. So once it replicates, it ends up, you know, either leaving the cell or maybe even killing the cell. If there's so much virus that, that inside that cell, that cell may, human cell may actually die. So that creates a fair amount of the pathology. And this is not terribly uncommon um, with regards to, to how most viruses cause disease. So, um, you know, so the virus is really not trying to do anything, you know, majorly specific other than that. Um, you know, once the virus has, has done this, um, you know, it then it, it's repackaged and then and gets, you know, sent out of the cell, it can then infect another cell and then the process just goes on and on and on until you have, you know, some element of an immune response that, uh, that basically shuts that process down. Now, if you've ever had any sort of exposure to the virus or the proteins on the outside of the virus, then, you know, that immune response pops up pretty fast um, and you're able to stop this maybe even before you even know that you are infected, before that you, you really have any significant disease at all. If you have no immune response, this virus gets to wreak havoc for a while until your immune system finally figures out what's going on. And by that time, there may be significant pathology that's happened, you know, whether that be with this particular virus in the lungs um, really in any organ system, um, you know, people that have died from SARS-CoV-2 have pathology in almost every organ system that you can imagine, the brain, the liver, the lungs, uh, the heart, um, you know, it, it, it really is, is pretty impressive, uh, mainly because it can cause problems with blood vessels. Um, so uh, th that's it in a nutshell. That's generally all it does. It, it gets into the cell, it replicates, and then until it's checked 
um, it keeps that process going until it ends up creating, you know, pathology really throughout the, the entire body. It's specifically the, the lungs is where it starts and has its, its probably largest effect. Nice. Thank you for that, um, for that synopsis. So just to put that in a real life context, um, as I understand it, and please feel free to correct me everywhere and anywhere, um, is you're in a environment, um, generally an indoor environment, and someone coughs or sneezes or sings or expels some kind of droplet from their mouth. And to the degree that I understand, the virus spreads uh, uh, through airborne aerosol, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, and then you, as a as a potential infected victim, come in contact. Um, with that virus, the virus itself is encased, as you say, in some kind of uh, lipid with these mm-hmm. spike proteins on the outside. Um, it comes down into your upper respiratory tract and connects to, as you say, the ACE2 receptors and kind of fuses with the membrane of a healthy cell, penetrates the healthy cell and essentially like hijacks its reproductive capability. Um, is that a fair fair mm-hmm. understanding? Yes, that 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 is a that is a fair summary. Um, absolutely. Okay, so, um, and then it seems like uh, the virus has a certain, I guess I might call it virality, or um, a, a certain amount of potency to spread. Um, and once it infects someone there is a reproduction rate, or I think what is referred to as an r naught. So could you um, explain a little bit about what that means and how it was, and what the, uh, the reproduction rate of the original ancestral strain was and is, and how that might compare to where we are now with Delta? Right. So, so just a little bit about that particular value. Um, it, it's a it's an epidemiological term, and it really is just a um, a a value or a factor that allows us to comparatively uh, c- um, look at the ability of a, a potential virus to to infect uh, from human to human. So. In, in a nutshell, even though it's sort of oversimplified, but in a nutshell, what that value means is um, how many people are is one person expected to one infected person expected to infect. So a virus that has an R naught of two um, would ex- would um, an infected person would be expected to infect two others. Um, so, and, and this could create, um, even at two, this can create a, a pretty significant spread of the virus um, because you can just essentially uh, assume that there's going to be some a doubling of infection over time. Um, so that, that R-naught value can be um, uh, affected by uh, preventative measures. Um, so, you know, the R-naught value that we assign to a virus initially is usually assuming that everybody around is completely susceptible to infection and that you really haven't done anything to try to prevent it. So masking and, and non-pharmacologic measures can, can affect the R naught um, and, and so can other things like vaccines and other preventative measures. So, um, so the, the ancestral strains of SARS-CoV-2 had an R naught of about two, between two and 2.5. 
Um, and as far as viruses go, that's that's modest. I mean, it, it, it isn't. Um, uh, it, it, we've certainly seen other other viruses that that are more infectious than that. Um, but but it's but but it was something that was clearly causing significant problems. Um, you know, across the across Asia and then eventually across the world. Um, so, but clearly Delta is a, a different beast that we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think failed out of math class uh, more than once, if that's uh, even possible. So, but my assumption or my presumption would be if you were able to bring a reproduction rate under one, a virus would eventually peter out and go away, right? Correct. But it's, as long as it's above one, it's still in its spread phase. Um, so we were dealing with an R naught of you know two to two and a half with the ancestral strain. What are we dealing with with um, in relationship uh, to the six one seven Delta right. variants? So, so one has to remember that um, it's been a little bit difficult to evaluate just simply because number one, we have vaccines in the community and, and number two, we're still gaining a lot of understanding of, of, of the virus. Um, but it's somewhere between five to eight, um, which are, have been the estimates. The latest estimate I've seen is actually six, um, which means that one infected person would be expected to infect six other people. Um, that's remarkable. Um, it's not quite as infectious as chickenpox. Um, it's it's certainly not as infectious as measles. Um, those are sort of the two examples that you know classically within the field people give as sort of the uber uh, infectious viruses. Um, but but it's in that ballpark uh, or close enough to where you know it's 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 a very uh, scary level of of infectiousness. Yeah, and. So yeah, I've heard chickenpox can sit, hover around a, a ten, and maybe measles right. even upwards of sixteen or eighteen. Right. Um, and to what does one attribute the higher R naught um, for the Delta variant? Why are we seeing a a higher reproduction rate with this particular mutated strain? Yeah, that's a great question, and it gets back to basic biology, right? So, um, so when we we talked about the fact that all of these viruses like to do is replicate, um, you know, in that replication process, it has to replicate its own nucleic acids. Um, it brings its own machinery in to do that, and this is sort of where they're, you know, sort of beautifully stupid <laughs> in that <laughs> they 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 make mistakes they the, their machinery makes mistakes and it doesn't really mean to make mistakes it just does and this actually has an advantage for the virus so in those mistakes it sometimes will make spike proteins for example that are on the surface that have specific mutations and so um so as as time has gone on and this virus has been in the community there have been thousands and thousands and actually millions of mistakes that have been made. And, you know, there have been a certain set of those that have uh, resulted in a variant. And, and we can talk more about natural selection and such if you like. But, yeah. but, but this is basically what has come out of that, of that variation and selection process is this particular strain that has a set of mutations in that spike protein. 
Now that, that spike protein, again, which is so incredibly important for binding the, the surface of, of the human cells, um, you know, if it has modifications that make it stickier, um, that make it bind to the human cell uh, more efficiently, then it's just naturally going to be more infectious. Uh, there's actually a beautiful study out of, uh, from Nature from late July where they, the, the authors, have you seen this study? Yeah, I saw yeah. it. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. Um, it is, yeah. So they, 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 where they talk about, you know, some of the, um, you know, the differences in the spike protein in the Delta strain as compared to the ancestral strains. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with just priming, if you will, those spike proteins, meaning that Normally, if you if you think of the virus, you think of the rendering of the virus, they always have a bunch of those spikes on the outside, right? Not all of those spikes are actually constitutively active, meaning they're not always ready to bind a human cell. In the Delta strain, 75% of them are ready to ready to bind at any one particular time, and they bind really well. So that makes it really, really sticky to human cells. Where you might have when I when I breathe. Um, well, hopefully I'm not infected. But if someone breathes a million viral particles onto another person, and you know, uh, 999,000 of those just bounce off um, because they don't have spike protein that's ready, you may not get that much of an, an infection, or you may have a reduced ability to have infection. But if in the the Delta strain, if you know half or more of those, 80% of those actually stick then you're much more likely to, to have an infectious event. Um, so that's the, that's the general concept, that these mutations have led, made it stickier. Yeah, and I, I think I read an analogy that you made where the ancestral strain might have had a spike protein that could be compared to like Elmer's glue. Or syrup. But, or syrup, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. The, but the Delta strain seems to more resemble your gorilla, industrial <laughs> the, gorilla glue, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, which I, I thought was helpful to, to explain. And, and then can you make the, then the logical leap between this enhanced, more potent spike protein or, or more potent binding uh, mechanism and uh, and viral load, which seems to be um, uh, much increased um, in folks that are infected with uh, the Delta variant. Yeah, we're we're studying that as well, um, and so there are there are two hypotheses that one could make here. Uh, number one, by the time one becomes symptomatic with a particular virus. There's a certain amount of uh, repl viral replication that has happened, and so we're either um, in the this is in the back of the throat, right? So this is where we actually detect the virus in so the back of the throat or in the nose, right? Either one. Yeah. So um, so there's a certain amount of replication that's happened. If you start at a much higher level, because so much more virus has bound to start with, you're just going to have more virus at the point of when someone becomes symptomatic as compared to the ancestral strains where you may have just started with say you know 10 or 15 viruses now you're starting with 10 million and it's just it's just a, a numbers game and uh right so the other possibility and that we're actually looking at and there is some evidence for this is that the delta strain actually does replicate faster 
um, that it does have some advantages with regards to its ability to to to, to reproduce inside cells in just a, a little bit more efficient way. Um, so we're figuring that out now. Yeah, it, it seems like I've also read about um, these kind of infection clusters that uh, develop um, th that seem to be more pervasive and, and insidious. Um, so can you then talk about the greater susceptibility of um, of young people and I guess of cohorts that seemed to be um, more unaffected with the ancestral strain? Uh, you know, when, when SARS-CoV-2 really came on the scene in, in force, um, it, it seemed like it was more aggressively impacting the uh, obviously elderly um, and the immunocompromised, but with the Delta that, that, uh, there's that Venn diagram seems to expand it a, a little bit more. So I wonder if you could just address that for a moment. Sure. And, and, and this is, this just gets back to basic microbiology infectious disease. And, and I think I'd written some, <laughs> something very, uh, kind of folksy about this before, but if, 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 and indeed it's true, if you spew enough of a human pathogen, on someone who's susceptible, there is a good likelihood that they're going to get a, a significant infection. And, and we think that's exactly what's going on here, that you know, I mentioned a numbers game before, that's really what this is. That you know, before um, and, and, and younger, healthier people, there may have been enough of an innate immune system response that's not specific to the virus. It's just an innate system we all have sort of at the surface that was able to ward off the small amounts of virus that, that one might get, um, you know, casually during certain infectious events. You know, those innate systems aren't that great in, 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 you know, as you age, et cetera. Um, but now, because you're being bombarded with so much viral load um, in, in any one infectious event, that innate immune system is really uh, rendered... Um, pointless. Uh, you know, it's, it, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it can't even come close to, to touching it. And so it's causing infections in, 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 in younger populations. The other part of this is our younger populations tend to be the, our unvaccinated or less vaccinated population right now. Um, you know, our older population rolled up their sleeve really early and, and we're actually vaccinated and, and thus have protection. Um, we can talk about breakthrough infections later, but um, but yeah, that's but that's generally why we, we're we're thinking that this is you know now a, um, uh, a a pandemic that's that's you know demographically spread out over uh, over the age groups. Yeah, I have three daughters that are headed back to school over the next you know week or ten days, so the 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 timing here is uh, certainly a source of some concern. Um, obviously, we want to get our kids uh, back to school, even just for our own sanity, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but just for, for their ability to, to learn and to socialize, et cetera. Um, but it's coming at a time that is, that is pretty fraught. Uh, maybe we could just spend a, just a moment just on, on evolutionary biology um, to understand what are the um, pressures uh, that are creating variants? And, and, and I think it should be um, noted that, that 
there are plenty of variants that are that seem to be not particularly potent at all. Um, but obviously, in the case of Delta, that's an exception. So, and there have been a lot of theories posited around this. I mean, I've even read some theories about actually vaccines um, creating some pressures that would have sort of the virus naturally select for uh, you know uh, a variant of of higher virulence, if you will. Um, but, uh, but but those seem to be somewhat sure on the edge. But um, yeah, I wonder if you could just kind of give us a little primer on on how variants actually develop. Right. So uh, I, I, this gets way, this gets back to the point that the, the, the viruses really are simple and they really have one goal in life and that is to transmit. Uh, it's to transmit and replicate. And so when you look at and let's get back to, to variation as well. Variation, as we discussed earlier, because of those mistakes and that um, that replication machinery, variation is always going to happen. And uh, and indeed, I oversee a uh, a variant sequencing lab um, here, and so we're watching this in real time. And and you are correct. There are gobs and gobs of, of variants that have been detected to this point, um, and most of them nobody cares about. You've never heard of them, nor, nor do you care to hear about them. Okay. Um, they, and they all have a you know a string of letters that that we've uh, denoted them by. You just don't care. So um, I mean, we care because we want to make sure that it's not something that the next wave, but. But but if you think about this this big massive pot of, of variants that come out of this that all have some little change or the other why does one pop out of this and and create um, you know major disease issues where the other ones just sort of fade away into nothing or, or never turn into anything and it all has to do with which one of these variants can transmit better because again that's all the virus that's all. That's all that uh, makes a, a, a particular variant successful is transmission. So what gets in the way of the virus transmitting? And, you know, to this point, the only thing that's gotten in the way of the virus transmitting are just general natural factors that have existed. They could be elements of the innate immune response that we talked about earlier. They could be elements of uh, you know, it's binding to human cells. It could be its ability to aerosolize a little bit better. Um, and, you know, could, those sorts of, of things. But, but almost all of the variants that have been successful have had mutations in that spike protein. So they, they've all been, you know, just had a better ability to, to, to bind to, to human cells. So um, the, the concept that a vaccine will actually drive this level of variation is, is both true and false, right? So uh, the vaccine itself is indeed something that gets in the way of viral, um, uh, viral transmission. But what's really, what's really pivotal, pivotal and very um, important to realize about the vaccine is that it's not easy to get around because of the way it's designed, because of it's just the way that, because of what we're actually doing with the vaccine, it's going to be highly unlikely that any particular viral variant is going to be able to completely get around the immunity that has been generated by the vaccine. 
-hmm. Will we have variants that have somewhat blunted, maybe reduced, uh, or, or maybe we have reduced immunity against those variants? That is, that is quite possible. And in fact, that may be happening somewhat with Delta potentially, um, but to have, but to, but to say that the vaccine actually caused that is actually fallacious. Um, it's it's actually not true. Yeah, I mean, obviously, all of these strains that we're talking about now pre were precursors to the rollout Correct. of the vaccine. So Correct. just even yeah. from a, yeah. I mean, a de logical standpoint, yeah. De Delta rose in India where there was, you know, essentially no vaccination at the time. So, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so, so now we're, we're looking at a mutated strain with a reproduction rate of approximately two to three X, the original. Um, and we, there is, an emerging rate of breakthrough cases that, that seems to be fueling concerns that the vaccines are less effective. And, and we can go into whether or not that's true or what the reasons are for that if it is true. But I, I think just to step back um, in order to understand the current effectiveness of the mRNA vaccine, specifically the Pfizer and Moderna, um, Maybe we can do just a little vaccinology 101. Um, so can, can you explain how the messenger RNA vaccines were developed and their basic functionality? Yeah, so um, uh, there, there are really two aspects of this. I think we, to, to, to fully understand it, you need to under, we need to understand a little bit about how, uh, how we actually vaccinate against infectious diseases, the classic ways that we do this, and then, um, and then how the mRNA vaccine works. Um, and and I, I wrote a, a fairly lengthy <laughs> Facebook post about this not that long ago. But, but the, the um, you know, classically, if you want to immunize someone against a particular pathogen, you could either take some you know, live or you know, attenuated um, pathogen or even killed pathogen and put it in a, a buffer and inject it into someone. And all of the, the various proteins and such on the surface of those things would stimulate an immune response. You would then, you know, um, now, now have that on board and you'd be able to react to any future, you know, live infections with that bug. Uh, the other way that you could do it is just to make in the lab, make those proteins, not the whole virus, you just have those proteins, put it in a buffer, inject it, and, and stimulate that same immune response to those proteins. And, and again, that's the, that classic way works really well. It's just really, really slow. Um, yeah. It takes a long time to be able to produce those proteins. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you is why there hasn't been the typical, I think they called uh, immunogen vaccines, mm -hmm. um, kind of like the salt polio where there's an inactivated virus. But is the, is the principal reason why we haven't seen those vaccines just uh, time horizon in, for development? So there, the, as far as the, 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 the killed vaccines or the, the live attenuated vaccines, yes, those take a while to actually safely produce. Um, if you're talking about historically the types of vaccines that, that generate significant side effects, it's that class of vaccines, um, mm -hmm. just because they're, they're, are, they're, they're dirty, they're messy. They, they're, they're just a lot of different 
you know, antigens in there that actually can, can lead to, to Guillain-Barre, which is a neurologic side effect. So, you know, so, so that's been the, the main reason. Now, as far as the, the protein-based vaccines, which are, are much, much safer, um, where we generate the protein and, and put it in the, you know, sort of mix of, of buffers, those are actually in trials. Um, there's there's a, a big trial in the United States uh, on one right now. Um, and there are some that have been used uh, across the, the across the planet. The, the advantage to those is they're very easily easy to distribute. Um, so and you can make you know pots of it very very quickly. Um, so um, but yeah, it's it's that that has been you know time has really been the the, the major issue with that. Yeah, and obviously because the messenger RNA vaccines appear to be a new technology. Uh, though my understanding is that they've been researched for some time, um, it, it has caused some uneasiness, A, just because the, the, the period of development was so quick um, and that there's never been a licensed or even a emergency youth author, use authorized vaccine that leverages this particular technology. So that's created a lot of uh, public uneasiness um, in, in accepting these, but, right. you know, maybe this is a good bridge into that technology and, and your understanding of how that technology functions. Sure. Um, so, and, and again, a little basic biology primer, and then we'll, we'll talk about how, how they're produced and, and, and actually what's in them. So, you know, we all have, you know, in our cells, we all have DNA, um, and that DNA is the blueprint for all the many, many thousands of proteins that, uh, that your, your, your cell needs to make. You, you don't want your DNA actually just hanging outside that nucleus at any point in time, if you can avoid it, because the cell would die. Um, and so, but, but that message that, that the DNA holds needs to somehow make it out to the protein machinery. Um, where the proteins are made. And the, the bridge for that message is a molecule called mRNA. When a protein that is needed to be made by the cell, there is a process called transcription where mRNA is made off of the DNA template. It then goes to the cytoplasm, to the protein production machinery. That mRNA is then uh, read by the protein production machinery. The protein is produced the mRNA is then rapidly degraded. Um, if there are any biologists out there that have ever worked with mRNA or, or worked with RNA period, you know that RNA is incredibly unstable. Um, it's very, very, very susceptible to, to lysis and, and, and physical degradation. And that's by design because you don't want the RNA to just keep, keep making protein. That's not how it's regulated. So that's the, that's the natural biology. So the, the idea here is that instead of making all of that protein from a particular pathogen in the laboratory, can we just give cells the mRNA template for that particular viral protein and let our cells make the protein for us? So it's the same natural protein production process that your cell is is using right now, all your cells right now, hundreds of thousands of times, um, in order to make protein. 
And so, but so, so we, we put that mRNA in, into the cells and we can talk a little bit more about the, the very gentle process where that has to happen. But the mRNA goes into the cells, it's red, protein is made in this specific case, it's, it's the spike protein that's made from the, from the virus that's made. And that protein is then released. It's, it's considered foreign protein, just like uh, it would be if it were injected just a straight protein um, in a traditional vaccine. The immune system sees it, creates an immune response, and then off you go. You're now immunized or beginning to be immunized. You've tra you're training your immune system to, 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 to react against that protein. Um, so that mRNA, in order to get it into the cells, is, it's very simple. And, and this is where the technology has been, it's been under investigation for at least 25 years. Um, I had a buddy of mine remind me that we were, when we were in graduate school back in the mid 90s, we had a, a really interesting talk um, where, where we were at school at the University of Arkansas from a University of Texas Southwestern investigator that was talking about this very specific thing. I think this was in 1996. So this has been this this idea and and this these types of things have been going on for a long time. But in order to get that mRNA into the cells, it's literally just packed in some lipid. It's 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 very simple. There's really nothing to it. Um, you know, there are no stimulants or anything. And that lipid is just to keep it um, stabilized and to allow it to to basically fuse with the those human membranes in order to get safely get the mRNA into the cytoplasm. Um, then along with a little sugar and salt, that's the mRNA vaccine. That's it. Got it. So let me retrace a few of those points. So we were talking earlier about the spike protein and right. how this is the um, connective element from that provides the envelope through which the virus attaches and infects your healthy cells. Correct. Um, so that became sort of a, a target for scientists and vaccinologists early in this process. They're like, okay, if we can attack that spike protein, then we can essentially neuter or, or um, the, the virus's ability to enter the cell, infect it, and hijack its, its reproductive processes. So that's what they did. So they mapped the, the genome of, of, of that spike protein or of the virus as well. And they basically created the message that a that the DNA would normally send out to into the cytoplasm to the ribosomes, and they essentially made that in a lab, mm -hmm. and they packed it in some lipids, um, a very simple ingredient list, uh, as far as I understand. It doesn't have any adjuvants in, or anything like that. Correct. Um, and uh, and and then this is injected um, into the muscle in your arm, and this RNA then. This mRNA then essentially goes into your cytoplasm, messages uh, a, a protein production process to produce that spike protein. Your body recognizes that as a foreign agent and <clears throat> gears up your uh, adaptive immune system, and then you start to create antibodies um, for that. Is that a relatively fair understanding? That's that's a that's a very good uh, uh, very good summary. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. One question here, and, and this is getting a little into, into the weeds, but there has been some um, theories promulgated that the spike protein 
um, that is associated with the virus has some detrimental impacts separate from the virus itself. Um, that when it attaches to the ACE2 receptors, that it can damage mitochondria, et cetera, um, and, um, and and contribute to some detrimental health impacts. Um, now, I don't know if that is your understanding as well, um, but if it is, what I have read, and maybe you can clarify this, is that the spike protein that is um, generated through the mRNA vaccine is slightly different um, in, a, in a couple amino acids, um, and this is, you know, cutting with a very fine yeah. blade here. Yeah, talking, um, talking proline substitutions, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, such that the spike proteins that are created by the vaccine don't seem to have the same deleterious impacts than the, than the spike proteins that are uh, uh, concomitant with the, the virus itself. Could you unpack that? Um, yeah, so that, that, that's, that's, that's a good summary, Jeff. And, and, and anytime you're actually um, creating vaccines, you, you want to make sure that the, the protein itself is not, um, you know, pathogenic in and of itself. It's very uncommon that it is, mainly because proteins that sit outside the context of a, um, of a pathogen Usually, unless they're true toxins, um, they usually uh, and and this and viruses don't you know are not class don't classically make you know toxins. They make a few, but you know this is not necessarily a, a toxin per se. Um, you know, but you want to make sure that the the protein itself isn't isn't it, it itself pathogenic, and and so there were a couple of reasons for for making those those um, those uh, amino acid substitutions. One is that those substitutions actually opened up the protein. And the reason you wanted to do that, if it, if it folds on itself and, and you can't, and your, your immune system wouldn't see all of the important pieces of it in order to make all of the correct neutralizing antibodies. So, you know, that's one goal. And, and the other is to also render it essentially um, uh, non-effective with regards to, uh, you know, binding some of the, you know, the important aspects of, of, of other biological um, uh, receptors, et cetera. So, um, and, and again, if, if the protein itself that's produced is not creating, and, and we should talk about side effects of, of vaccines, yeah, and because it kind of relates to that. I mean, that's what it really this really gets to is that you know are are these vaccines you know safe? And it has to be. One has to remember that we've given millions and millions of doses of these vaccines to this point, and the the side effect profile is very very small. Anytime you develop a drug, uh, you're, you're going to have a certain uh, certain number of of side effects, especially when applied over a large population. And, um, and, and the average, you know, the, the, the average side effect profile of any particular drug is, is going to be what it is. Um, but this is extraordinarily small. There's some myocarditis and pericarditis um, in a small number of, of people. Um, it's usually um, teenagers um, and over the age of 16, and they're usually male. Um, yeah. and it's usually after the second dose, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really narrowed it down. It, it, it isn't very common at all. 
Um, so did you have something? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I've seen um, a statistic that it's about 12 cases per million, uh, right. per million second doses actually right. administered right. to be specific. Right. So um, yeah, the side effect profile seems to be, um, to be limited there. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of um, loose uh, verbiage that gets thrown around um, with regards to the vaccine. It's in many cases called experimental, um, even though it did get FDA license this week. Um, but perhaps you could just very briefly address some of the initial efficacy data okay. and and the trial process that these vaccines uh, underwent. Sure. sure. Yeah. And, and, and I want to begin by saying that every drug is experimental when it first comes <laughs> out, right? Yeah. Um, you know, e even after FDA approval, we, we always watch uh, drugs very closely, um, even after they hit the market. Um, so, but the, the, this, this particular vaccine um, had a, a very unique, both of them, both Moderna and, and Pfizer, um, and J&J, &J, uh, all three of them actually had a very unique uh, pathway to to approval. Um, what was you know first emergency use authorization, and now with the the Pfizer product for full FDA approval. Classically, when you do trials for a particular drug, you are going to do them in sequence. There's phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, you have to determine whether or not the drug works. You have to determine whether or not the drug's safe. And then you want to replicate that over a much larger group of people in a phase three trial. And, you know, for a, if you think of this from the, 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 uh, from the point of view of a drug company, those trials are incredibly expensive, very, very expensive. And they actually bring a lot of drugs into trials that fail. And, and so you wouldn't want to do a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three at the same time and spend all of the money for all three of those phases if you aren't really sure that the drug is going to work, number one. So, um, so you would almost never do that. Um, so normally you would never go to phase two without making sure phase one works, never go to phase three without making sure phase two works. Here, because we needed them so quickly, um, there was enough uh, money on the table, if you will, um, to allow them to do all three phases at the same time. And so we actually generated the same amount of data that we would in a, in a, in a, in a typical or close to the same amount of data that we would in a typical uh, trial, uh, you know, sequenced trial period. Not only that, there were more people looking at this data than probably any other drug class in the history of any drug. And, yeah. and so there's so many people were, were, so many scientists were looking at this because we were all very interested. Um, we were all also about to get injected ourselves, right? So we wanted also wanted just self-preservation, <laughs> wanted to make sure that we, we, we weren't doing something that was going to be uh, deleterious to our own health. And, and so... Um, so yeah, so so because of that, it was allowed it it, it was it was able to come to a market very quickly, very much quicker than your typical uh, your typical pharmaceutical. Not only that, I also want to point out that something you mentioned uh, earlier on, you know, we were able because of our history with coronaviruses, specifically SARS one, 
we were able to, based on experience from that, sequence SARS-CoV-2, get the genomic sequence from SARS-CoV-2 very fast. So we knew the, the genomic sequence very early. And then because these mRNA vaccines are so easy to produce um, and so quick to produce, and because we had all of this information in January of 2020, basically, um, you know, it, it, we didn't have any of the lead-in time that you would typically have for a vaccine. So not only were we, did we have something to test very soon, we were able to take the trials and stack them on top of each other and get a product out to the public in, you know, a very short period of time. It doesn't mean we short-circuited the whole uh, process. We, we, just, we just did it in, a, in an intelligent way with a lot of brute force work by a lot of scientists. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you could take a moment and um, explain what the nature of randomized double-blind trials uh, look like. So, for example, with Pfizer, I believe in the, in the third stage clinical trial in the fall of 2020, there was about 44,000 people in the overall trial. I think in Moderna, closer to 20,000, maybe just north of 20,000. Um, so how are the uh, vaccines and the placebos administered in a way that, that reveals um, effective data? Yeah, of course. And, 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 and any, any double-blind trial like this means that the, the person who's receiving the vaccine and the person that's giving it have no idea uh, you know, what they're giving, if they're giving, you know, nothing but just saline or if they're giving, uh, the actual drug, they look the same, they're labeled the same. You cannot tell the difference. Uh, the only, the only place where that's known is on the back end because each one of those has a barcode on it. And and so it has a, a specific number. So, uh, in, in the background, someone knows and, and, yeah. So what's what's interesting about these two vaccines is that they were just so remarkably effective as compared to placebo uh, in those trials. Um, and same way with the safety data. Um, it was also, um, again, even in, in the, the 40, 44,000 and the, I think, 21,000 and or 22,000 in the Moderna. Um, yeah. Right. So I, I think if I understand it correctly, the the placebo and the vaccine were administered and then there needs to be enough virus generally out there for the the trial to be effective and uh and so they're constantly testing these groups and i think you know they test until you know 100 people test positive and then they kind of pull back the curtain and they say well of these 100 people that tested positive for for covid uh how many of them had gotten the vaccine and how many got the placebo and it was something you know to the tune of you know, 95 of the 100 had been unvaccinated and five had had been vaccinated. So there, so there was an infection component of the data, but I think, and this is what I'd love to get your opinion here, it seemed like the really compelling component of the data, though, was that of the vaccinated group, virtually nobody was hospitalized. I mean, I think maybe one person had a oxygen level that that was lower or something. But, but to me, uh, to me, and I think if you're going to put the vaccine eff- efficacy on a on a hierarchy, it, it, it seemed that what the the shining light 
of these vaccines is that it seemed to prohibit it, prohibit aggressive contraction, essentially hospitalization and, and fatality. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, and and I think that's that's a very important discussion to have when you're talking about effectiveness of vaccines, like effectiveness yeah. toward what endpoint. Um, you know, there's effectiveness towards the endpoint of just infection itself. Um, and then there's the, the endpoints that, that most vaccines really have, which is, do these, do these prevent significant disease and, and morbidity and mortality um, in the human population? Because that's, that's the, the, the long-term goal. Now, of course, we would love for it to prevent inf infectiousness. We, we would love for, for it to do that. Um, but the, the, the real end point is, you know, we want to make sure that the vaccines are, are preventing severe illness and death. And, and you are correct that the, the vaccines in that sense were not only remarkably um, impressive early on, they've remained that way. And they still remain that way, um, it, it, even through the Delta surge to this point. For that particular aspect, they have re they have remained very effective with regards to uh, preventing hospitalizations and death. Yeah, and, and so just chronologically moving forward, these the third stage trials happened. The data came out in November or so, twenty twenty. There was a emergency youth authorization granted by the FDA, I believe, in December twenty twenty, and then. Concurrently with that, we were seeing huge spikes in starting in January in in deaths. I, I believe we were somewhere you know north of four thousand, even a couple of days north of five thousand per day uh, in January. And then the vaccines began to be administered and started to to permeate you know through the various cohorts, and there was a significant um, uh, decrease both in in cases and certainly in fatalities but uh, so at the same time that we were seeing that good news in the united states uh many of us were watching what was happening in india uh and the delta variant began ravaging india and particularly seemed to be impacting younger people i mean india is a little different demographically i think the average age there is 28 so it's a it's a it's a little different case study um, but eventually that variant inevitably came to the United States, and I believe it's now the dominant strain, and now we've seen a spike in cases and deaths, which always seem to lag a little bit behind. And more vaccinated people in the U.S. are starting to test positive, um, including my brother two days ago. Um, so maybe you can address the issue of effectiveness of the vaccines vis-a-vis -vis Delta. And if they are less effective, then, then why, why is that exactly? Right, right. So I, again, some of this is, is hypothesizing at this point because you know, we're, we're still learning. Um, and, and again, we're, it's, it's, they're important points for us to, to, to be able to define because they, they really do outline our next steps forward. And so, so the question is, you know, at, well, first of all, the vaccines are still, as I said, remarkably good at preventing hospitalizations and death. If you look at the, the, the areas of the, in the U.S. that have had just remarkably high levels of, of cases, um, there have not been 
a significant number of, of hospitalizations and, and deaths in the, in the vaccinated population, anywhere near compared to the unvaccinated, but they're still happening. And, and a lot of the, um, the, the patients who are vaccinated and become infected and get significant disease and, and even die are, are typically have some other comorbidities, some other disease process, or maybe are elderly. Uh, maybe they didn't react to the vaccine all that well to start with, um, or, or some element of immunocompromise. Um, so, but, but still, you know, th there are some some breakthrough infections that you as you said, even in the the younger, healthier populations. So the question is: Is this because this viral strain is just incredibly um, good at what it does? And and I think that's a yes. It is incredibly good at what it does. Or are we actually seeing waning immunity? Um, mm -hmm. Because most of us, or a lot of us, were vaccinated in January, February, March. And we're just starting to see, especially amongst the, the, the people that were vaccinated early, um, you know, are we seeing waning immunity that's leading to this too? And there is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that that may also be true. So we may have two things converging here at once that, that are leading to, to some of these breakthrough infections. This is exactly the, the data on the latter piece is exactly why, you know, the White House and the CDC are strongly considering, uh, you know, booster doses um, sometime early next month um, is to try to, 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 to do this. But again, this is to prevent infections um, and possible, you know, less um, try to prevent infections, but, but more than anything to try to prevent some of the uh, the more severe disease and, and maybe some of the, the, the few people who, who were actually um, debilitated and, and may, may, may be elderly um, that, that didn't react so well the first time around. Yeah. And, and do you think we'll see eventually boosters that are optimized for the Delta strain? Because obviously these vaccines were designed for the spike protein back yeah. of January 10th, 2020. Right. I, I don't think that 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 the that the um, I mean, I'm going to try to be clear here. I don't think that the immunity that that is generated secondary to the vaccines on the market now are um, a problem it, it, with regards to Delta. I think they're still very effective against Delta. Delta just creates so much viral load that comes at anyone that even if you had a vaccine that was exactly the same spike protein, you may still be seeing this exact same phenomenon. Um, mm. it, it, we, we, it, may, it may have nothing to do with that. So um, just, just simply because the, 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 it, it, there is good evidence that we're still mounting a very strong immune response um, you know, against this particular virus. Yeah, maybe you could talk for a moment just about the, the incubation period mm -hmm. and where the antibodies seem to exist within us physiologically, yeah, yeah, right. because I, I think that's actually a, a, a key point, and you can get into, I think, some yeah. of the differences of hemoglobin and the right, stuff right. that's yeah, beyond you know, my you know, pay IgA right. and IgG, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, so we, we, when, you, when you vaccinate or, or someone, and, and what you're generally going to get, you know, when that protein is released from those muscle cells, is you're going to get that amnestic uh, immune response that's going to generate um, immunoglobulin G or IgG. 
And that's the immunoglobulin that floats around in your blood. You can find it in some of your tissues, um, but but it's you know it's sort of the circulating uh, you know henchman of the immune system, if you will. Over over time, um, you know it will if it doesn't see a, enough of that protein, it will sort of wane, and and you may not have nearly as much of it floating around. But at the level of the of the the, the throat mucosa, um, the nasopharyngeal mucosa, um, you know, IgG that's just not a not where it hangs out. That's not the kind of antibody that you usually see on mucosal surfaces. This might be this is the mucosal mucosa there, the mucosa of your gut. Typically, mucosal antibody is IgA or immunoglobulin A. The vaccine, while it produces some systemic IgA, does not necessarily produce IgA at the level of the mucosa. And so when, when you're exposed to a, particu a, a particular virus for which you might have good IgG-related you know, immunity from the, from the vaccine, it doesn't necessarily mean the virus can't still attach and, and, do, and replicate some and because of this particular variant, and because there's so much of it there, it can actually get a little ways down the infection process before the IgG is actually gets involved and says, uh-uh, <laughs> uh, we're not having any of this, right? So you may get transient infections, and you might even have someone who gets, you know, kind of mildly symptomatic. If the IgG levels have waned to the point to where they're quite low, then you might even be able to have a, a fairly significant infection. Or if you never had IgG levels that got all that high, you know, from the first rounds of vaccination, then you may be able to, to have, uh, may end up with having a pretty significant infection. And, you know, this, this happens over a course of a few days, um, you know, anywhere from, from two to five to six days. And indeed, what we've seen is that in persons who are vaccinated and get infected, that the levels of virus in their throat are at least for the first five to six days after they've, uh, you know, after they've uh, been infected are the same um, as someone who's been unvaccinated. But at that five to six day mark, the virus in the amount, the virus in the throats of the vaccinated person starts to drop remarkably. And that in the unvaccinated person remains. So, um, yeah, so it's so so this would also yeah. affect potentially the rate of transmissibility between a vaccinated cohort and an unvaccinated cohort. And what I'm sort of honing in on slowly is that there are plenty of people right now that are saying, well, you know, there's breakthrough infections and it seems that even vaccinated people can transmit uh, the virus. So why would why? I get vaccinated? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think you've addressed a, a number of reasons, but maybe you could just bullet point some of yeah. those. I, I, and, and I will, I, I will start with that one <laughs> because, <laughs> because at day four or five, the, the, in the people who are infected, right? So we can talk about the three to four fold uh, reduction in the infection rates in those that have been vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Um, but in those that get infected, you're only infectious for maybe five, six days, uh, maybe four to five days, where someone who's unvaccinated can be infection, infectious for as many as 18. 
right? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about this from a community spread standpoint, the vaccinated person is certainly not a vector for nearly as long as compared to someone who's unvaccinated. Um, you know, and the other part of this is just the protection of your, your, your own self. Um, you know, again, the, the severe disease, the COVID long hauling, all of the things that, that, that are, you know, that this virus has, has led to with regards to morbidity and then also the mortality because we are seeing deaths even in younger people. Um, young, healthy people, um, that, um, you know, it's really just a protection. We're, we're not seeing those in the vaccinated population. We are seeing some deaths in the vaccinated population, but those deaths are, as I mentioned, are, are, are primarily in, um, you know, the elderly population and, and folks that probably did not amount to a very good immune, amount of very good immune response to begin with. So, the main the main reasons that we, one would want to get vaccinated at this point would be to number one protect themselves and then number two to protect others um you know just simply because you're while you still could be a vector you're not going to be a vector for nearly as long and because you could still be a vector this is why the cdc and and others have said okay we've got to go back to the non-pharmacologic inter interventions it's not something we really want to do, but we need to go back to doing the the masks and distancing um, as much as we can tolerate as a, as a society. Um, you know, you had mentioned in the front that you know having our kids in school and the importance of that, and 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 I think that's fully understood. And 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 so, but there are still common sense things I I think that we as a society can agree to do to try to protect one another. Um, and 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 some of that is you know is getting vaccinated and then also, um, you know, doing the, you know, sort of the not the common sense, non-pharmacological things that, that, you know, not only protect you, but protect others. Yeah. Are there any therapeutics or prophylactic therapeutics, um, that you advocate for, uh, either in conjunction with vaccination or, instead of vaccination. Yeah, it's, it's not really my area of expertise. I'm not an infectious yeah. diseases treatment expert. Um, and and I, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's probably either. Uh, yeah. So I, I've yeah. had a lot of yeah. questions about this, a lot of questions about, about yeah. this particular topic. And, and, and I, I kind of talk around it. So with, but I will say that there are monoclonal therapies that have been, um, you know, very heavily um, uh, promoted as being, you know, some sort of uh, um, ability or give us the ability to, to, to potentially get around this. Well, first, I will say that the delivery of those, of those pharmaceuticals is not simple. Um, and operationally, trying to actually deliver those above, you know, or, or deliver those instead of delivering vaccine is much, much more difficult and it's much more expensive. So it's sort of an ounce of prevention, pound of cure type of thing. Now, in a, a very heavily infected population, if the horse is already out of the barn, meaning that you're in an area where there are so many infections and that it's almost too late for a vaccination campaign. Um, you know, you may think about certain areas in Florida, maybe, you know, certain areas in the, in the southern part of the U.S., um, uh, Alabama, maybe, maybe Mississippi. Um, you know, if you could provide 
um, that on a, a very uh, controlled basis um, to try to reduce the amount of hospitalization, then that could be an, 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 a, a truly helpful public health you know, measure, just simply because it keeps our, our hospitals functioning and not completely co full of COVID patients. So if it has that effect, that's great. But as a general public health overarching you know, strategy to try to get us past this is, is just not terribly wise. It's not efficient. Uh, it's not, it's certainly not economical. Um, so, um, and there have been some other, uh, you know, drugs that have been, um, you know, mentioned as you know, people think that they're, you know, the, the next, they're the old wonder drug. That's the new wonder drug. And there, there's just no data to actually suggest that they, they have the effect that people think that they do. Um, and and multiple uh, societies and agencies have have strongly urged against their use um, for many reasons. So um, we're sort of back to the hydroxychloroquine uh, arguments again. Unfortunately. Yeah, and yeah, ivermectin and fluvoxamine well, and yeah, well, a bunch ivermectin's of the new yeah. hydroxychloroquine, yeah. right? It's yeah. it's yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so as people kind of assess the risk benefit or, or they perform that analysis, um, you know, one of the factors that they're weighing is like, uh, you know, well, I can take my chance with Delta um, and, or, you know, I can go down to CVS and actually, you know, get an injection, um, which seems like a, uh, it's a more proactive choice um, and in that proaction, you know, you are having to address risk benefit. So I know we talked a little bit about side effects in myocarditis and pericarditis. Um, what is your assessment of some of the reports that have appeared on VAERS, the, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, um, you know, around, um, COVID vaccine related deaths or, or other kinds of side effects. And you might have to provide a little bit of um, context on VAERS itself. Right. Yeah, I think we'll start there actually. Um, so, you know, anytime that you're trying to gather um, data like this, a po population level data, you have to cast a very, very broad net. And it's, it, so you're, you're actually gonna have very high sensitivity at the expense of specificity. Um, so, and that's exactly what VAERS is designed to do. It has almost no controls on the front end, meaning anybody, I could go in right now and say, yeah, I, I actually have a broken toe and I think that it's related to the vaccine. I mean, you, you, can, you can kind of manipulate it if you want to. You don't even have to be all that you know, truthful or honest. Um, it's, the, it's the hope that, that people are. On the back end, there are there are various tools that that are used by epidemiologists and 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 scientists to be able to wade through that gigantic pile of data and try to come up with you know are there truly any links between all of this this gigantic data set and you know and and actual side effects related to to the vaccine. What's been, unfortunately, what people have done is they've take, taken the front end data set that is very noisy, that is very full of, of you know, just uh, 
non-contributory information and and turn that into you know like I said this is fact this is exactly how we do this i do the same thing as as well with when i have to report um when we do blood transfusions i'm on the transfusion utilization committee and you know any death that happens within 72 hours of a blood transfusion has to be reported to the fda and we we have to actually or we at least have to review it um and or and determine whether or not it, it needs to be reported to the fda as a contributing cause to the patient's death we we do this on a pretty common basis these reviews because as you might guess there are a number of people that um, a lot of people that that get blood transfusions are fairly sick. And so there are deaths in this group of, of, of patients. And um, but when we go back to look to see if there was any causal link at all, almost never. Uh, it's very, very rare that the blood transfusion itself had any sort of causal effect. Theirs is the same sort of data collection process. Again, you cast the wide net, then you have to go in and determine whether or not um, there, there is a, a causal link. So um, yeah, from a population standpoint, the, there, when you look at, at the data that has been reported through that system that has been accurately evaluated um, and the data from, from the, the trials themselves, there just is no, uh, there at this point, there at this point, and really at this point, we're at a point to where we can make a really good um, systematic evaluation of safety. Um, there's no, um, you know, significant side effects with uh, associated with this vaccine that happen, you know, with any sort of, uh, uh, of frequency. I mean, m m many of these are just extraordinarily rare, as you said, 10 to 12 in a million. Um, and that may be a slight overestimate. So, um, yeah. 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 Nice. Um, yeah. And, and I suppose, I mean, what VAERS really does, it's an early warning system for professional data crunchers to, to assess. Yeah, right. and, um, and, it, and it seems to be doing its job uh, sort of with regards to some of the, the blood clots that were associated with the, the low platelets tied to, tied to some of the AstraZeneca. The J&J, &J, yeah. And the J&J. And, &J. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because that event is so very, very specific, it, it makes the the attribution of, of causation easier um so so it seems to be um effective there um you know there are you know these like twelve thousand fatality reports on, on vares um and of course there's no causal link uh there at all but but even if one accepted those on face value the if you were doing any mathematical calculations you would find a fatality rate associated with covid you know 100x times the fatality rate there so i just uh right i try to underscore that yeah. as much as i can yeah. right yeah no I, I i agree with that but i i still think i when i talk to people i still try to make sure that they understand that that twelve thousand number is much like our transfusion number yeah, that, yeah, that's that's an upfront number that that has really no meaning whatsoever. Um, it's it's the number on the back end after the evaluations that have been done that are so incredibly critical to look at, look at. And and those numbers are essentially zero. Um, you know, I, we don't see people coming into our hospital 
on any kind of regular basis secondary to any kind of vaccine hospital or vaccine side effects. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So just in, uh, in closing here, I, and, um, of course this is time stamped, so we don't really have to worry if it ages well or not, but I'm going to ask for some, we've done a lot of diagnosis. I'll ask for a little prognosis. prognosis. Um, you know, where are we headed in the short term and the longer term? I mean, are we headed towards endemicity or are we, yes. should we expect or fear a, a variant worse than Delta or, or where are we? So we're, 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 we are along the way. And, and, and again, I've written, I've written that this is uh, in, in a way, this is kind of a uh, choose your own adventure book. I, I do think that the, the end itself are, are, is kind of written in, in the way, in, in a way that it likely will be endemic. Um, so we'll start there. We'll start at the end point. This is, this is very likely to be something akin to flu. Um, it possibly could be reduced to something no more than, than cold, like, uh, you know, um, a cold, like illness, um, uh, just, you know, simple upper respiratory illnesses. Um, but, but it may, it may actually be more like influenza. The good thing is that this virus actually doesn't vary nearly as fast as influenza. It seems like it's super fast, right? But, but that's just because there's so much replication happening happening in the community. But, but once we get on top of it, we may not actually have to booster this thing more than, you know, once every couple of years, or maybe it would just be a booster that would be combined with the influenza vaccine each year, um, maybe in a single mRNA vaccine that covers both of them. Um, and so, you know, it, it, there is, a, there is a, uh, an end point here to where this just becomes part of our background. Um, so how do we get there is really the question. And, and that's the choose your own adventure part. You know, the, I, the, the least painful way is to try to get as many people vaccinated as possible um, so that we have a reduced level of, you know, disease and, and death um, while we actually get um, and, and generate enough immunity in the, the community um, to, to reduce spread to the level to where we can just make it uh, an endemic background virus. Um, and, and indeed, amongst the vac vaccinated population, that's kind of where we are, um, you know, at, at this point. Because what's going on right now is um, within the vaccinated population, if you just completely separate them out, it is kind of what it would look like in an endemic, in an endemic scenario maybe a little worse. I mean, we may be able to make it a little bit better just with, with boosters and, and, and more longer term immunity, um, better trained immunity. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's really the, the, the spread and the, the, the effect of the, uh, on, on our hospitals and such in the meantime that, that, that are really painful. Uh, this fall is probably going to be the next eight, six to eight weeks is probably going to be really painful. Um, yeah. In a lot of areas of the country, I think there's almost no way around it, um, you know, unless everybody went and got vaccinated tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just I just continue to try to, you know, talk to, to folks and try to educate them as much as I can and and try to get them and, and to, you know, just understand the situation and that they do have an option here. They can choose their own pathway here and, and protect themselves with the vaccine. I understand that it's, it's um, somewhat 
uh, scary in a way because it's, you know, it's a newer technology and such, but it's not that new now. It's been around for, um, you know, again, it's been around for 25 years, but it's been on the market now for, you know, over a year. Um, and, um, or at least uh, in trials for over a year. Um, and, you know, just really, really wanting people to, to, to think about this, you know, this risk, as you mentioned, uh, in, in the whole um, and, 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 and make decisions that, um, you know, are the best for them, um, you know, based on everything that we know now. Um, but I also understand that there's so much information out there coming from so many different places. And then if you don't have a background like mine or, or, or people who are, you know, who, who read a lot of science and, and, and understand it at its baseline, they would be really, really difficult decisions to make. And, and, and again, I've gotten questions from people all over the country, all over the world, actually, that, that just demonstrate how, how confused and, and how um, really unsure and hesitant that people are, not because that, you know, they, they have anything against the vaccine. They just really don't understand um, a lot of the basics. And so, and, and that's just sort of been my goal is to, is to try to, you know, shed a little bit of light on that um, and, uh, and, and just, you know, arm people to, to make, uh, make, the, make the decision or better arm them to make decisions. Yeah. Well, you do that so well. And um, I know I'm not alone in saying that we're, we're grateful uh, for your work at this time and, and not just for the work you're doing, but how you're messaging around the work. Um, you're obviously passionate about what you do, <laughs> but you express it in a way that is aptly dispassionate, if you know what I mean, such that, you know, there's so much shaming going on in every direction uh, and the, the ecosystem on social media can be so vitriolic. And so I think the path that you've chosen, which is just, you know, educating people on the baseline is, is the best possible path. And, and I really am uh, applaud your efforts. So, so thank you so much for what you're doing and, and for yeah. spending time with me today. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Stacy Klutz. You can keep up with Stacy's writing on Facebook at J Stacy Klutz and drop me a line anytime at Jeff K at onecommune.com. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.